Hello. What's up, everybody? You're listening to the Multiracial Mental Health Podcast, where each month we explore the complexities of mental health through the lens of multiracial identity. My name is Shireen Shuai, and I'm a licensed psychotherapist and mixed race woman of Black and Iranian descent. And I'm Madrone Love, a fellow therapist and mixed race woman of African American and Scottish Canadian descent. Together, we're here to bring you informative and authentic conversations with experts in the field of multiracial mental health. Hello again, everyone. Today, we're talking with Dr. Alicia Del Prado, a licensed psychologist, consultant, and author. Dr. Del Prado started Del Prado Counseling and Consulting in 2011 and provides therapy to adults and youth in her private practice in Danville, California. Dr. Del Prado co-founded the Asian American Psychological Association's Division of Multiracial and Adopted Asian Americans in 2016 and served as the first chair of its executive board. Dr. Del Prado served as one of the first female co-chairs of the Asian American Psychological Association's Division on Filipinx Americans and is the co-editor of the first AAPA's special issue on Filipino American psychology. In addition, Dr. Del Prado is a prolific writer and researcher. She authored It's Time to Talk and Listen, How to Have Constructive Conversations About Race, Class, Sexuality, Ability, and Gender in a Polarized World and over 30 research studies, chapters, and articles on cross-cultural studies and a range of psychological topics. Let's get into it. Yes, yes. Alicia, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. We're really excited to have you. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be with you both. Well, uh, we wanted to start off by, um, you know, getting some of your stories, some of your history. Would you tell us about your path to clinical psychology practice, teaching, uh, academic research? Um, and in what ways did your mixed identity or family history play a part? Um, and, um, you know, kind of following from that, what made you decide to focus your uh, academic and clinical work on multiracial individuals and families? Well, as my bio might suggest, uh, I identify as a Filipina Italian American, and no doubt that my multiracial identity has heavily influenced my professional pathway. And I was born in San Francisco, grew up in the Bay Area, and I really was surrounded family-wise with a lot of actually multiracial diversity. For example, I have family members that are Salvadorian in Italian or um, including, um, you know, Filipino and Irish. I could go on and on, (laughs) but we have um, a lot of, you could say, racial and ethnic diversity amongst my cousins and extended family. And so it kind of always felt, quote unquote, normal for me, whatever normal is, right, (laughs) if there is such a thing. Um, And at the same time, I grew up in a predominantly Filipino community in like Daly City, Colma area. So that was kind of my baseline for my peer group. It wasn't, though, until like college and undergrad where I was kind of hungry for 
even more language for my identity and also understanding my experiences. And so loosely, I think that's how I got to psychology. Uh, And it was a great fit in a lot of ways because I wanted to, I was drawn to the the terminology at the time was like cross-cultural psychology, multicultural psychology. And I remember thinking, hmm, I I wanna know more about that. I wanna be a part of that. Uh, So that's part of my story. And then the other piece is that I always knew that I wanted to be in like a people-oriented profession and was really interested in a kind of quote-unquote helping profession. And so the intersectionality of those two things, I think, kind of brought me to this field. Just going to say that. And, And in terms of like intersectionality, I was raised Catholic and I also, um, I guess in terms of what at that time in the 1990s was like professions that were considered worth pursuing in my family, like there was there was definitely a time where I considered becoming a medical doctor. And so I volunteered at UCSF in the Bay Area and really had this experience where I realized I didn't want to be a medical doctor um, and learned from the patients I was volunteering with that the social workers were doing the things that I really wanted to do. So the medical doctors, of course, were critical in their healing, but the social workers that provided um, kind of some practical support, some emotional support that made me feel, okay, I'm I'm all in. And um, I mentioned that kind of intersectionality of kind of a religious background combined with kind of in, especially my Filipino side of the family, like what would be an acceptable profession after I graduate from their eyes and the, and the somewhat pressure I felt there kind of also led me to pursue the PhD, which was kind of, I had to convince my dad and my grandmother that this was like a worthy profession. <laughs> I won them over in the end, I think. When did you begin to focus your attention on multiracial identity? Um, and and when did the research and the writing on this subject start? Great question. So it wasn't until I graduated because what I found was that I was fortunate to work in a lab, a cross-cultural personality lab that did research in multiple countries. So I did that mostly through graduate school. But when I was interested in looking at multiracial issues specifically, um, there wasn't necessarily faculty, or there wasn't, I should say, faculty that supported that. And so uh, they weren't overtly against it, not at all, but there, I went to a program where it was, you know, there you kind of had to pair with a faculty member that was already doing research. Um, and so it was an idea that I had from the beginning, but wasn't actually able to grow until I had my own credentials to then be like, okay, This is what I want to study. So I really believe in that delay of gratification is something that has been part of my career thread. And when I was a postdoc at Cal in Berkeley, um, I partnered with a fellow postdoc who also identifies as multiracial. And we co-authored a chapter together and put in our proposal for that work. So it started not it was early in my career, but later in my, my, I guess, like research work. Um, and I and kind of fought to do that once I had the room for it. Well, I guess to, to that end, you know, thinking about like approaching your research and finding 
yeah, kind of having to find a place um, for yourself within within that. Um, I want to, you know, we we talk a lot about language here uh, in, in in this podcast, and um, you know, you you mentioned um, multiracial affirmative language yourself, right? Um, in your chapter, the multi- multiracial movements bridging society's language barrier. You're right. The language barrier in the United States can be overcome if society as a whole is willing to adopt a multiracial affirmative language and mindset. We we advocate suggestions for how all individuals, both multiracial and monoracial persons, can use various mixed race identity terminology, see the world through a multiracial affirmative lens, uh, and implement multiracial affirmative actions. Mm -hmm. Right. So how how do you describe or how do you consider um, what multiracial affirmative language is and a multiracial affirmative lens? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, unfortunately, as you both know, um, there's been a history of pigeonholing and stereotyping and even trying to eliminate the presence of multiracial people in the United States. And it wasn't until 1967 that the Supreme Court prohibited the state laws that banned marriages between individuals of different races. So with that background that we've inherited, um, that the idea to practice multiracial affirmative language, but as well as a lens, is to be overtly proactive with your stance and use of identity terms, for example. So even something that on the surface might seem so simple, how do I want to identify, is is not. And those options have been either as a whole generally taken from us as a multiracial community or imposed on us. And so to be multiracially affirmative in our language and our lens, it's important that from my perspective, that we are open to however others want to identify. And that means being culturally humble. And so in that chapter that you referenced, we organized um, from the literature, like how are people identifying as well as what have the theories kind of that are that are out there. How, how would they describe multiracial identity? And so, to uh, not get get too dragony, but you know, to also kind of expound on the chapter, you know, there's the idea of like monoracial, where multiracial folks are kind of being pushed into having to be have a monoracial lens, or they might self-select that way. Um, phenotype, the way we physically look often influences how we identify. And I'll give a brief anecdote. When I was in fourth grade, I would identify as Filipina, Italian, Spanish, and Chinese. My grandmother, who is from the Philippines, would identify as ethnically Chinese and Spanish because of the immigration patterns in our family. And I remember in fourth grade being like, that's just like a really long list. And even though I grew up in the Bay Area, which as diverse as we know, um, there were mostly monoracial kiddos in my class. And so I felt very different by having to list this as well as just tired. And so from my practical nine-year-old brain, I was like, I'm just going to say Filipino and Italian because people understood that more. I had less questions being asked when I did that. Um, And it kind of made sense to me from like a country perspective. So that that's not monoracial, but I think it's an example where I was feeling like 
the way I identified was influenced by the responses that I was getting. So uh, I want to also add that from my perspective, there are a lot of reasons other people want to put certain identities on us. Sometimes it's politically driven. Sometimes it's because of other people's kind of feelings in your family. And so I really like to advocate for my multiracial clients and other multiracial folks that I interact with that to kind of be able to figure out for them what feels right. And that kind of goes into these other types of being, how do you be multiracially affirmative? That it can be fluid, it can change over context, and it can be developmental. So you know what, in 20 years, if we do another podcast together, I might intro might be totally different and I might identify differently. And that doesn't mean that I'm lost or confused or don't know who I am. It means that I have that right as part of my identity to to say that without feeling pressured, intimidated, et cetera, to do otherwise. Other types of identity um, theories that are out there that will allow us to be multiracially affirmative and to know about includes, um, you know, the fractional identity, which, you know, there's some, um, you know, there sometimes can be concerns about that fractional identity. I'm a quarter this, I'm a quarter that, I'm a quarter this, a quarter that. And at the same time, if that resonates with somebody, then I'm going to be supportive of that while also acknowledging and making space for the, does that make them feel more compartmentalized or less of an integrated person? So acknowledging that, that there might be hardships associated with this or there might be pros. And that really varies from an individual perspective. And then, um, and I'm not being exhaustive here, um, but you know, also the a-racial identity. And that one often gets pushed back, I think, even within our communities. If someone doesn't find race and ethnicity salient to them, oh, uh, that's okay from my perspective. Now, I don't relate to that because I feel like my race and ethnicity was always present and relevant into whether it was when my mom did my hair or tried to do my makeup for my dance class or whatever it was, you know, um, however, that if my client is going to come in and it doesn't just feel as salient to them, I'm going to be open to that. Um, I'm going to introduce terms if it's helpful for them, but I'm also not going to be overtly leading them into a particular identity term. And so I think that flexibility is also part of being multiracially affirmative. What was it like in your family? Uh, you know, were there discussions about race or, you know, about mixed identity? How did that happen? Gosh, well, so, you know, from an ecological model, I think I'm a prime prime um, specimen <laughs> because I my parents are divorced and they divorced when I was about three years old. My mom is Italian-American. My dad is Filipino-American. And so, you know, that um, separation in the family also influenced how I was able to integrate or not integrate my racial identity. And so um, I am very fortunate. I come from a very loving family on on all sides of my families. Um, and at the same time, I think that, you know, in in terms of being able to have like an integration of celebrating multiracial identity, I think that was something that I kind of was figuring out mostly on my own. Um, there was acceptance, but there wasn't overt, I guess, communication about it too much. And I think that, you know, it's, it's that 
maybe the last 10 years, I feel like there's, um, you know, we still have a long way to go, but there's just more visibility and that I'm picking out. I mean, I'm, I'm looking for it too, but whether it's on magazine covers or advertisements, like I feel like there's more, um, you know, constellations of multiracial families that are there, which I think is really positive. Um, you know, my parents got married 10 years about after, um, you know, Loving versus Virginia. So they kind of were, from my perspective, like kind of like living it rather than being able to like talk about it. So I'm thinking about, um, I think it was the last podcast uh, with Gina and Kelly and um, this concept of epistemological justice came up. Mm-hmm. And this idea that um, there are some ways of knowing that are, so this epistemology, some ways of knowing and then sharing this information that are privileged over others. And you're sharing about, I mean, in a way I'm hearing your entire education experience, but but we can focus specifically on your graduate school experience in psychology, mm-hmm. where there wasn't support for your interest in this uh, area of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And how you independently pursued it after you were done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, first of all, way to go. <laughs> Thank you for doing that work. Um, but yeah, just want wanting to highlight that this sounds like this is this has been part of your experience of of this knowledge you're wanting existing outside of the of the 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 dominant kind of discourse. Um, and and then I'm hearing not only did you write this article, but you've written up to 30 articles. So you kept going, you kept writing and then mentoring and 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 kind of giving to this field. So I'm curious if you can like locate back to you publish this first article with the other postdoc. Mm-hmm. What encouraged you to write a second article and a third article? Why did you keep down the road of of multiracial studies and, and research? Yes, I think that it personally probably connects to that hunger for wanting things that I think would, you know, would would have been helpful for me, but also like enough passion for it wanting to be helpful for others. So, you know, I linking back to like cultural values, like I think the value and that's why I mentioned the Catholic um, identity previously because it was like about service so that kind of you know um the the service like to give to others to want to help other people so i think that was it i love writing too by the way so so i think that helps um i find that to be a hard but like wonderful creative outlet so i think that's why i kept writing and you know, there's a story when I was five years old, I wa- I went on a walk on the beach on a family vacation and I got lost apparently. Like I wasn't freaked out or anything, but my mom was super freaked out, understandably. And I uh, went to the lifeguard and the lifeguard was like, okay, tell us what your daughter looks like. And I think that he was trying to get out, what is she wearing and all this. And my mom in a panic was like, she's a mixed kid. Like that's the first thing that like came out of her mouth. And we were like, like she would, we would tell this story about 
how my mom said this thing in a panic and was so worried and it, they keep everyone would kind of like joke and laugh about it and I just remember being a kid like oh yeah my mom was, was like super scared but like the meaning of that later like I didn't really get it in the moment if that makes sense and and yet it was a story that stuck around in my consciousness and so like trying to figure out like what's the big deal about this you know like why is this so important in society and I think that with every article I write it's like I'm trying to do my part to chip away at this and how to like both see race and ethnicity and also you know be broad as well and and how to be able to in like um write about these things so that whatever I've figured out or learned along the way can help someone else figure out their journey and and it be, you know, this kind of, I guess, societal process, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I love writing um, to kind of like non-psychology offices, uh, uh, audiences. Uh, and that, so that's where my blog, Speaking from the Heart, comes in on psychology today because I think it's a great way to... Uh, just kind of put out some of the ideas that we're working on in academia and and trying to make it relevant to other people outside the field. Mm-hmm. Alicia, I want to step us back for a moment because I want to be with you in the story. So when your mom blurted out, she's a mixed kid. Wow. Um, how did that land for you when you when you heard this story or like what was the meaning of this in your family as it this story was shared? Yeah, I mean. It's funny because as I say it now, as someone in my 40s, I'm like, God, wow, like, huh, you know, at the time, it was just like this funny, like, oh, you know, um, you know, my mom's like a very, like, like, loving, like, outgoing person. And she's also like, can be super anxious, too. So like, just like, it was kind of, they were like, almost like laughing at my, like, the experience of, oh gosh, Alicia got lost. She's she's back now, thank goodness. Cause I was trying to find my family that was going for the walk. And and so now I, you know, I think it probably was that 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 and I should probably ask my family. So I don't speak for them, but I think that the salience of my race was there. I was with my Italian American family. Um and so likely that I I was different from that family in that way in that moment um i'm kind of you know postulating here but 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 likely that was it and and i never felt microaggressed by that story um there's other times in my life where i have um but yeah i don't know if that answers you that yeah that absolutely does and and just getting the context of this was your italian american white mom explaining to this police officer that a lifeguard. Lifeguard, excuse yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, that my kid looks different from me. Yeah, yeah. This, this is how I see my kid as mixed. Yeah. And maybe this was like, oh, mom sees me as mixed. Or, you know, it's like yeah. brings salience to your racial identity in a way that it it hadn't been brought before. Totally. And when you're saying that, like, I also wonder if my mom, like, would assume he would think she, he they're looking for a little white girl. Yeah. And so, you know, I was like tanned and black hair, you know, so yeah. So in a way, I feel like it was practically, she probably was like, find her as soon as you can. And this is, she doesn't look like me. Yeah. Well, I, I relate and I, um, is a different story, but short anecdote. I was in high school and my grandfather, who I love very much, um, was a 
very white Scottish Canadian man. And he was uh, saying something about, oh, it was this general, this black man general. I can't recall his name. Um, and he was saying, uh, the Republican, and he was saying, like, I, I could use him as a role model or something like this. And I was like, okay. But what I took out of that was, oh, he sees me as black, which is fine because I am. We had never, I was in high school, we had never talked about race. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in a way, it, it was a little moment of awareness, like, not little, like a moment of awareness of, oh, this is how this family member sees me. Yeah. Right. Powell. Hey, Powell, I think. Yeah. Powell and Powell. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, and I, as I say that out loud, I, it's like how bizarre in, in a way um, that I'm 17, 18. Like, of course, of course, my white family sees me as black. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But also not, of course, because we've never talked about it. Right. And so maybe that's bizarre in a in a monoracial world, but I think in a mixed world, there's so much like to talking about it, not talking about it. Um, yeah. So totally. I mean, I feel like I, we could go on and on. I'm sure. Like the, I mean, the I remember getting, um, you know, at the time it felt like attention and positive attention for some of my physical attributes, and you know, I look back on it, and I'm like, wow, there was definitely some othering and exotification and you know in the moment I'm I guess I'm kind of lucky I didn't get it because I didn't it didn't land that way but in retrospect I think again there was some positive intention but if you look at it from multiple angles it was definitely racialized mm. Mm, that that's 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 such a rich topic in itself but an article for psychology today called growing up multiracial um, how to help multiracial children feel comfortable in their own skin. Um, so, you know, seems like a good segue in, into this question. Can you share with our listeners um, your suggestions for helping multiracial children feel more comfortable with their identities? Gosh, now that I'm a parent, I'm like, whoa, what a tough job. <laughs> and, um, I, you know, ideally, I feel like we, I, I recommend trying to bring in a strengths-based approach from the beginning. You know, um, I don't think I believe that our children are blank blank slates. They come in with a lot of their own strengths and traits, et cetera. Um, And at the same time, you know, when we're trying to influence the environment, we do have control over our homes. I really recommend trying to bring in um, you know, like a baseline that to kind of again use those terms from before that's multiracially affirmative. Okay, so how? Like what what's the what's the resource? What's the to-do? So I think that if you can, having like a family like value framework or, you know, a, a brief paragraph on what's your family's kind of um mission, so to speak, I think that's a way to make it overt for the adults, you know? And then as the children get older, introducing it so that it is more explicit, but even before they can get it, we know that we're being mindful of how do we help expose our children to role models, 
books, toys that they can see themselves reflected in. And I think what's so tricky, especially for multiracial youth, is you want to be able to make it an overt conversation, right? So that it isn't that it's happening later in life, if possible. But you also don't want to make that that's the only thing that they are, right? And so it's really tough in practice, but I think that if we're coming from this stance that's strength-based, but also flexible, we can make room for introducing them to those books and having those conversations, um, as well as other types of media. So if you are multiracial yourself, um, I think that 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 pride that maybe you have, or hopefully you have, and if not, then I think we need to do our own works, of course, as well. Um, but I, you know, sometimes we'll say to my kids, like, oh, I really am proud that I am this because, you know, or my kids have asked, oh, like, yeah, how do, um, they, they haven't said it in this term, but the question was kind of like, how do I identify or what, you know, the, the what am I question and air quotes because of the what were people, not things. Um, and I have said things like, you know, I identify like this and you can identify how however you want. And, you know, at the age my boys were when they asked that, it was like, oh, okay, well, that's what I am too, mom, because you are that. And so I think that was containing for them because they, they had a, a base, but I also tried to respond with, um, okay. And you know, and if it changes for you, that's okay too. So that's where it's like, you're giving some structure for the children, but also giving some room for them to disagree or identify differently than myself or other people in the family. The other thing, um, I'll, I'll mention is, um, Kip Fulbeck. I'm not sure if, um, that that name is familiar um, to those listening, but he has a book that now, gosh, like that probably almost two decades old, <laughs> but it's called Mixed Portraits of Multiracial Children. And it can be like a coffee table book. There's these beautiful photos of different kiddos and their description about their identity. And sometimes it's about race and sometimes it's not. And that's been a great book I have found to have around for my family um, because it's something they can pick up on their own or sometimes I'll pick it up and be like, oh, this resonates with me. What do you think? And that's kind of a nice way that it's like, it's just part of the environment that they can lean into or not um, based off of their interest as well. Mm -hmm. um, do you work with multiracial youth in your clinical practice? Um, and how do you approach this topic with them? Yes, I do. I do. And, you know, I had the classic psychology answer. It depends. <laughs> um, and at the same time, I'll say that, you know, I really listen for things that might connect to their multiracial identity. And if I hear it, then I will lean in and try to open it up for conversation. Um, unfortunately, because depending on Actually, I, I want to rephrase that. Uh, not unfortunately, because 
depending on where someone's at with their own racial identity development, one intervention could land as helpful or harmful. And so I really want to be able to assess what is their racial identity at the moment, because if it's salient to them, me mentioning it can be validating and empowering and they can feel seen. If if maybe their gender or their sexuality is more relevant or they're more a-racial and they're not thinking about any identity terms at the moment, it can feel microaggressive. And I have had folks tell me that that's happened with some therapists where, and I was thinking, oh man, that therapist was totally well-intentioned, um, but it landed as that's how they see me. That's the only way they see me is because of my skin color or because of my hair type or um, because of other ways that I look or because of my name. So when I'm working with multiracial youth and clients, I really try to have, um, you know, a tentative formulation about where they're at with the process so that can influence how I engage. I also think using tentative language really helps. We make mistakes. We're going to make mistakes. And so if I do make a mistake that unintentionally harms the client, I want to be able to, you know, observe that and then lean back in and and be able to say, oh, you know, it seems like what I said didn't land well with you. What's going on? Because how often does someone, um, you know, maybe harm us unintentionally that, uh, or intentionally, but harm us and say, oh, what what did I do? How how can I repair? And I think that can be exceptionally healing. Um, and those experiences, if I, you know, if I make that mistake, I'm open to hearing it, owning it, and maybe even apologizing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have two questions. So we'll yeah. see. Um, the first <laughs> um, is, well, I guess it's just curiosity around uh, your clients who identify as aracial. Um, it's not mm-hmm. something that I know a whole lot about. I've heard of it, but um, so so curious. Uh, and then the other question is for those clients who do identify as uh, multiracial, where that 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 is salient for them. What are some of their common concerns, presenting concerns related to that identity? Sure. So for the aracial identity, they're often not using that term. That's what the literature will say, right? But they're kind of saying, I'm a human being. Um, they're 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 not endorsing like, you know, on your your intake forms, which might be saying, Oh, how do you identify? Or if you have multiple check boxes and, you know, allow your clients to check multiple boxes if you do it in a quantitative way. Um, That's really important to creating a multiracial affirmative space that they're not checking anything. They're, They're not engaging with even the the framework. And sometimes it's because, again, it just doesn't resonate with them. Other times it could be an overt rejection of the the race system and the problems associated with it. Um, But I would say mostly it's just, it just doesn't, doesn't land. Most of these folks are not in psychology, social work, counseling, like they're usually in other fields or in other professions. um, Because, you know, I feel like in, in, in our world, generally speaking, that feels like, oh, gosh, is that a good idea? Um, and I think it's a smaller group um, within our community. And, and I also think that we can make room for it for them. So for those folks, that's where I'm seeing it more. It's like how they talk about it. And when I have broached it, they shut it down fast. Um, and so, again, maybe that will change over time. But that isn't something that they're really wanting to intersect with much or be seen as primarily or at all. 
for for uh, youth and adults that are more kind of either exploring or identifying as as mixed or multiracial or biracial, I have definitely found that Dr. Ruth's Bill of Rights can be a powerful um, a tool or intervention, um, as well as actually her work on, um, it's just like that list, it comes from research, but it's a list of 50 experiences of racially mixed people. And it will list things or it does list things like, you know, I've been misidentified or I've gotten stares with when I'm with my family, you know, that people are trying to figure us out. My parent has been misidentified as my boyfriend or girlfriend or partner. Um, and this can be like, a, oh my gosh, especially for people that haven't grown up or have community with other multiracial communities, excuse me, people that this can be like a really validating, like I didn't know other people had these experiences. So those are a few that I have kind of gone through to throughout the years and they've been helpful tools. Just appreciating where we're going with the with the conversation. I have a a couple of questions, kind of based on where we have been at. Um, you know, you're talking about working with clients and kind of making the call or not to you know pick up on certain things they might say as a basis of kind of leaning into exploring. You know, if if what they're talking about might be. Um, relevant to how they might identify racially. Um, and, you know, I got curious about, you know, what kinds of things are you listening for with clients? Um, sometimes, you know, they'll be talking about anxiety, right? Or just, you know, something completely, you know, seemingly unrelated to race explicitly. As an example, like if one of my clients is talking about like relationship issues and relationship problems or even a breakup, then in my head, I'm kind of trying to understand who that person maybe might be. And if they're not saying those things, right, like they're not talking about their their race as an example or their ethnicities or backgrounds, like I might be wondering, hmm, like how does that play a role in all of this? And you know, to be honest, I struggle with what, when to bring it in, because if I'm off, then I think it could be like this, you know, lean back moment for them. Like, Ugh. However, I do think the risk is worth taking depending on rapport and, you know, uh, how much distress the client's in at the moment to gently wonder and ask about and and about that and sometimes i will use intentionally broad language to let them project on whatever feels salient so like oh how do your cultural backgrounds influence this fight and usually if race and ethnicity are salient that's enough of a hook for them to take the invitation um and then sometimes they're like what do you mean by culture and then i'll say i'll kind of do my vague or excuse me, my broad um, definition could be a bunch of different things and then kind of list ways that I think culture can influence the anxiety or the argument or the relationship dynamics, especially because, um, you know, dating, at least, you know, I think I think from, from what's documented and also anecdotes and, you know, experiences, it's like that dating can be especially um, complex. Uh, you know, the 
I think I didn't answer the question actually, what as I'm saying out loud, like what are the common things that multiracial clients are coming with? And authenticity testing is big. So being tested by others, are they black enough? Are they Asian enough? Are they Latino enough? You know, whatever the identity is that they're feeling they have to prove. And when they decide who to date, that can be seen or to partner with or to marry, like that can be seen as affirming an identity over the other and people can have reactions to that in their life. Mm-hmm. I kind of went on a tangent. I hope that <laughs> I hope the thread was okay. No, it's great. It's great. Thank you. And you know, I'm taking my own notes around, you know, just the the open-ended nature of that question. And do you think that culture plays a role on what you're talking about? And just, you know, kind of the gentle gentle introduction of of that topic and they can take that or leave that, right? Exactly. And if they say no, I'm like, oh, Okay, thanks for letting me know. So it's not like I'm, you know, forcing it to be an issue for them. If it's not, but the seed has been planted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do think sometimes people go back to that later. Oh, I thought about what you said and actually it does play a role. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's really helpful and one way to think about working with, you know, all clients, but, you know, maybe multiracial clients as well. And just thinking about the role of being a multiracial therapist for, a multiracial client, um, you know, my my other follow-up was uh, I really appreciated what you shared about that, you know, if you do raise the question of, like, you know, the role of culture, um, that some people will embrace that question, some people will feel really seen and validated by that, other people might not, or they might have, you know, a different relationship to that topic, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in in my experience, just educationally, you know, in my training, um, and then once with the, you know, with the white supervisor who I loved actually, but, um, you know, it just kind of landed the wrong way when she brought that up in the room yeah. with me. Um, it, it's validating to me to hear you talk about this <laughs> in, in the, and to acknowledge that, you know, just the nuances of how we identify and what that means to us, mm-hmm. uh, I think can get maybe a little lost, a little shrouded in in that discussion of, you know, cultural humility and like how to bring up difference clinically mm-hmm. and like that, because often it's coming from like a white therapist lens, right? Like how do we address difference in the room with clients? And um, yeah. so I just, I really appreciate um, you know, what you're saying about this and, and how that really fits, I think, for for our community in particular, where it, it is so multifaceted, you know? Definitely. And I think one of the things that I do find doing probably a little bit more with multiracial clients is trying to use appropriate self-disclosure that will be validating for them or will like that role model thing, you know, like because of lack of role models or maybe you have a role model, but it's still not overtly talked about. I try to be intentional about appropriate self-disclosure with those with clients um, that even maybe we don't share exact ethnicities, but it may be a shared multiracial identity, which really seems to to matter. Um, and I've, that definitely had some healing spaces for myself as well as I think for students and others when there's that commonality. Mm-hmm. And so do you disclose your mixedness with your clients? Mm. I definitely am open to it. 
and it, it also um it depends so some challenging circumstances i've been on been in and and i think this connects to a common experience of that kind of ethnic ambiguity where people don't necessarily know um what my ethnic background is um and and i'm pausing because it's there have been times where i haven't self-disclosed when they have projected an identity on me i wasn't sure if it was helpful for them for me to clarify what my identity was and so because i didn't feel like it was in um but i i was but i i pause again because it was it's really tricky because they've already projected i'm not trying to deceive them you know i and and also you know they, it, it wasn't even a central point. It was just like they're talking so fast, and they, they're, you know. So, so yes, I'm open to it, um, and also, you know, that whole is it in the benefit of the client, which I really encourage people to talk to their supervisors, their friends, or colleagues, because, you know, that might not feel good to you as a multiracial person to have to do that. For me, it's been okay. Like I have been like, okay, this doesn't seem like it'll be helpful for them. But I've also been ready to be able to talk about if they say, wait a second, I didn't know that was your identity. Why didn't you tell me earlier? So kind of like ready to broach that if it becomes relevant. But yeah, actually, I think that's a very common experience that I've had as a multiracial therapist where people are thinking I'm something that I ethnically actually am not or have talked negatively about one of my racial, uh, my family background. And I don't think they knew that. And then I've had to figure out how do I broach this? When do I broach this? Do I broach this? Um, how would this relate to the presenting problem of the client? Relate. Mm-hmm. A lot to say there. <laughs> well, I, I just want to flag that this seems to be a pretty common experience among multiracial mixed therapist mm-hmm. is that we are all encouraged to um, be forthright about our own our identity identities with our clients. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, that gets complicated when um, the client is not reading our identities the way that we understand them. Mm-hmm. So, so this disclosure, it's like a clarification and it, and it can shift the relationship and um, yeah, I think this is a roundabout way of saying this encouragement. It seems very specifically for a mono, two monoracial people in a room, mm-hmm. or more specifically, as Shereen suggested, uh, it's a, the encouragement is for a white therapist and their monoracial client. Uh, and here we're talking about a mixed therapist and mixed client, monoracial client. The dynamic is just different, and so how we're going to approach that and the implications of that kind of disclosure are different. And to my knowledge, there's not any research about um, this mm-hmm. and how to do this most skillfully, and how this is um, how this is working out for folks. Right, right. How do you protect yourself and still, you know, not invalidate your own being while also there for your client? And I think that um, hints at the, you know, what are your what are our spaces and where do we find community? Um, so so important. Well, so maybe this is a great time for you to share about the Asian American Psychology Association Division of Multiracial and Adopted Americans. Uh, that sounds like a great space for these conversations. Yeah, for for myself as a multiracial Asian American, Filipina American, um, it's been extremely pivotal. And so in 2016, 
myself and Dr. Curleen DeBlair co-founded that division and, you know, kind of came from like, where's our, our space? And I was actually active and was um, one of the first um, women chairs of the division on Filipino Americans. And that, the, that was created um, by Dr. David and Dr. Nadal. And when they created that division, I returned, so to speak, to the Asian American Psychology Association. I'd been a member, but but kind of had withdrawn, so to speak, from being active. And when they started that division, I was like, okay, I'm going to try again. And um, it was it was a great home for me. And I also found that I wanted something for multiracial folks. And through that process, Asian Americans that also are adopted said, well, does that include adopted Asian Americans? And I was like, yes, for me, you know, this idea of inclusivity and the commonality and advocating for each other. And so that's how those two kind of communities have come together. And we uh, actively talk about what are the similarities and differences and does it make sense that we're a joint space? But basically it came from, you know, when, when, when wise elders and wise colleagues say, you know, you don't see a seat at the table, either pull up a chair or build your own table. You know, we built our own table. And uh, also that was, you know, through the the president of AAPA then having an inclusive, Dr. Nadal, having a cl- inclusive statement, which was, I want to promote in my presidential platform, bringing to the table people that haven't felt seen even in the AAPA space. And that was enough for me to say, oh, yep, I'm going to do it. And we decided to do it. And I'm happy to say that it's, um, you know, going strong under a totally different executive board and leadership. And it has been pivotal and being able to come to a space where you can talk about what's going on for you. And it's both and it's it's a community for um, multiracial and adopted Asian American professionals and students to be able to have community, but also to do service, to serve the larger community. And so they will do joint programming at the AAPA convention. They sponsor grants for research. Um, and then they also do, you know, kind of like meetups and town halls and community buildings. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about that um, kind of professional organization um, that does provide some infrastructure. Although I think that the casual spaces are just as healing and important too. Mm -hmm. It's so exciting to hear about. It's so wonderful to create these spaces where not only is there mutual support, Mm -hmm. but out of these spaces comes change. Like new ideas arise, new collaborations arise, um, new projects. Like this is how, this is how things get better. Well, and and reflecting on our spaces, or, or excuse me, our our memories, like your memory with your grandfather, or my memory at the beach. It's like you share that in those spaces, and someone's like, "Oh my gosh, yes, that happened to me. This is my version of that story," you know. And so it's like I think you do feel seen and heard, and have community at the same time, and you can pick up back up in that group of people without seeing them for years, you know, even through the pandemic, come back to that group. And so it is really, really special. And I think the idea too, when we 
put the petition and the proposal to the larger Asian American Psychology Association. I had no idea if it was going to pass because the members have to vote whenever a new division is created. And so I was honestly a little worried. I didn't know what the response was going to be. And I can say it, it was a healing experience when it passed by overwhelming support and majority and fast because it was like online voting. And so when I learned the news that it fast with such great numbers and so quickly, it was also very validating. I was like, okay, sometimes I might feel alone and that people don't get the value of this. Um, but this was to me, I was going to read it as it was valued and important. Yeah. Just hearing that my whole body is, it's a yay. <laughs> right. Yeah. Hold on to the whole oh, <laughs> Right. It gets my wheels turning like, hmm, like what, what's next here? Like what else? <laughs> what can we get going? <laughs> the energy, the synergy, like, okay, what, what do we do next? Hmm. <laughs> Well, Lisa, do you have any um, do you have any advice for other mental health or research professionals who want to improve their um, their work with multiracial folks? Yes. So I if possible, I think it would be great for folks to attend like a meeting of, you know, a professional organization or community group that's already focused on these issues. And if possible, I would say not to do a recorded training only, but one where, you know, just like us, we're talking, we're sharing research and books and resources, but we're also sharing from the heart in our lives. And I would really recommend that because I think that moves us in ways that, you know, a chapter often can't totally, but that relational learning, I think is is pivotal and transformative. And so that's what I would recommend if possible, whether that's, again, a virtual live meetup or, you know, planning to go to an in-person meeting or conference. Mm-hmm. I love that. You know, just the you know, shared humanity there and not just reading about a topic in a book. Right. Right. It, it just, from my experience, it just doesn't stay with you the same way. And, you know, you can apply and, you know, I still find the value in like Sue and Sue's model of self-awareness, knowledge, skills. Like I still go to that. But and, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'm no doubt the stories you've shared with me, like I'll hold on to them so that when I'm engaging with new people in my life and my clients, I'm going to be able to like just resonate with that. And I think that can be the difference between like, you know, a, an intervention that might come across as like missing the mark versus one that's coming from like a human space that's informed, but, but then the, yeah, it can make all the difference. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm realizing one, we're, we're quickly coming to a close, but also I, I have not shared this anecdote anecdote um, with our listeners that I shared with you, Alicia, before we started. And, and I want to, which is how I first in, met you, I encountered you. Um, which was at the California Psychological Association, you were giving a presentation about mixed race Americans. And um, this was before I had started graduate school at the Wright Institute. And I saw you were affiliated with the uh, with the school. Yeah, that was a huge encouragement for me to go there. Because I wanted to go to a place where I could be myself and feel comfortable being myself as a mixed person. And so that was a kind of a like this you know, flag on the school as, as a place that was going to be welcoming. And so I 
I did end up going there, recently graduated. So yeah, I just wanted to both thank you and also saying this kind of sharing this with the listeners to um, highlight how important it is or or maybe how potentially meaningful or um, helpful it can be when we speak with pride, speak with curiosity, share with interest about our mixedness, our multiracialness. And people might be listening that are impacted in ways that you don't know. Uh, so, so yeah, so thanks. Thank you. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, as we conclude, is there anything else that you want to uh, share with the listeners or any um, thing that you haven't been able to share yet that you, you want to? Well, that just touches my heart. Thank you again for sharing that. And a hundred percent, it's like, I guess I would, would, would expound on that in, in terms of wrapping up for today, which is that it can be really scary to take risks, to share parts of ourselves that maybe have been rejected um, by others in the past or overtly discriminated against. And so at the same time, sometimes taking that risk and sharing ourselves uh, can really have profound impact on other people. And I wouldn't have even known that that was the case for you. So again, thank you for sharing that. And it makes it worth keep trying to show up and um, be visible. And that might help someone else's visibility too. Thank you again for having me today. Mm, thanks so much for for agreeing to come on. And, you know, that's part of what we're wanting to do with this podcast that, you know, for for folks who might not yet kind of have language for themselves or feel um like they have community that uh you know that that they can they can listen to this and feel seen um maybe hopefully you know inspired to share more of their story and you know a hundred percent. I've enjoyed listening to your podcast. I've learned a lot as well. And and just what's so great about the portability of this resource. I mean, as a as a teenager, I remember like maybe getting a magazine of someone that looked <laughs> being excited and right. holding on to it. And so this is this is one of the great things about our era right now in technology. <laughs> I had my one Mariah Carey tape. That was, <laughs> she was holding it down for a generation. Thank you. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's a great example. I think I had that same cassette or single. <laughs> well, Alicia, how can uh, how can people find you? What are you working on these days? Anything you want to promote? Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, well, so people are always welcome to go to my website, drdelprado.com. The Psychology Today, Speaking from the Heart is something that I've been actively writing um, these days. And um, lastly, if anyone's looking for kind of like leadership, um, I guess, inspirations, I recently wrote a chapter um, on leadership lessons and kind of kind of take one of those like top 10 frameworks in the chapter. And, and that's in a book called Disrupt. It's the fourth edition um, and it features uh, Filipina women leaders across industries. And I think that's like a really great resource. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you both. You've been listening to Multiracial Mental Health, a monthly podcast where mixed therapists center and explore the lived experience of multiracial people, couples, and families. Multiracial Mental Health, the podcast, is an ACAST production and a project of the Multiracial Mental Health Clinician Directory at www.multiracialmentalhealth.com. Mental health is a journey, and we're here to support. If you've enjoyed the episode, 
Be sure to like us, share the show, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and all the usual places where content can be found.